Now these are records of the generations of Esau. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Oholibamah, the daughter of Anah, the granddaughter of Zebion the Hivite, also Basemath, Ismael's daughter. Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemath bore Ruel, and Oholibamah bore Jewish and Porah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives and his sons, all the household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods which he had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to another land away from his brother Jacob. For their property had become too great for them together and the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of the Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Then these then are the records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Adah, the, Adah Ruel, the son of Esau's wife, Basemath. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, and Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was the concubine of Esau's son Eliphaz, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Esau's wife Adah. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, and Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Esau's wife Basemoth. These were the sons of Esau's wife Oholibama, the daughter of Anah, and the granddaughter of Zebion. She bore to, to Esau. Jewish and Jalam and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chief, or chief Temnah, Timon, sorry, chief Omar, chief Zepho, chief Kanaz, chief Korah, chief Gatam, chief Amalek. These are the chiefs ascended, descended from Eliphaz, the land of Eden, in the land of Eden. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Ruel. Esau's sons, Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, Chief Misah. These are the chiefs descended from Ruel in the land of Eden. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basemoth. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Oholibama. Chief Jewesh, Chief Jalam, Chief Korah. These are the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Oholibama, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lothan, Shobal, Zibion, and Anah, and Dishan, and Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Eden. The sons of Lotan were Hori, Himam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, and Manahath, and Ibal, and Shipo. And Omnam, these are the sons of Zibion, Ahai, and Anah. He is the Anah who found the hot springs of the wilderness when he was pasturing the donkeys of his father Zibion. These are the children of Anah, Dishon, and Aholibama, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdad, and Ishban, and Ithran, and Shiran. These are the sons of Azir, 
Bilhan, and Zavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zebion, Chief Ana, Chief Dishan, Chief Ezer, Chief Disham. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites according to their various chiefs in the land of Seir. Now these are the kings who reigned in the land of Eden before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom. The name of the city was Dinhaba. Then Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah, of Boza, Basra, sorry, became king in his place. Then Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites became the king in his place. Then Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the field of Moab, became king in his place, and the name of his city was Avith. Then Hadad died, and Samla and Mashkara became king in his place. Then Samla died, and Shual of Roabath of the Euphrates rivers became king in his place. Then Shual died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, became king in his place. Then Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar became king in his place. And the name of his city was Pau, and his wife's name was Methabal, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mezabab. Now these are the names of the chiefs according to, sorry, according to their families and their locations by their names. Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Jeheth, Chief Aholibama, Chief Allah, Chief Pinon, Chief Kenaz, Chief Timnah, Chief Misbar, Chief Magdiel, chief Iram, these are the chiefs of Eden, that is Esau, the father of the Edomites, according to their hab habitations in the land of their possessions. To God be the glory. This is God's holy inspired word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the strength and power of your Spirit. And we do ask this morning that you would help us to understand and to get a sense of what you were saying not just here but in all of your holy inspired word we pray lord that we would great great gain great confidence when it comes to coming across and coming upon chapters such as this to not skip it but to read and press on through it we pray that you would strengthen us today through your word help us to see how this chapter fits into your redemptive plan for all nations, all nations, Lord, of every tribe and tongue and people, that you would save some from each. We give to you all of the praise and glory and honor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I see now and hope now that you, you now understand what I mean by our uh, second test this morning. And it is a great test, isn't it? Especially when we are uh, losing, as it were, an hour of sleep. Coming to church and hoping that we would hear something that would inspire us. And what do we have but a list of difficult names to pronounce? Brothers and sisters, what do we do with such a chapter? I wonder how many of us when in the times of our own personal devotion, when we come to such a chapter and take one glance at all of the different names and say to ourselves, I think I'll skip this chapter. 
or I hope my, my, my wife won't mind. As we read this chapter together, my wife was in the middle of the chapter and said, I'm literally getting nothing out of this chapter. I don't understand why it's here. And I said, yes, dear, I'm with you. But there is a reason why this chapter is here. I think we can all confess when we come to such chapters, we may not want to fuss with all of the difficulty of pronouncing all of these unfamiliar names. What is more, even if we can somehow muster up the patience to wrestle through all of the pronunciations at the end of it, I think we can sometimes confess we are altogether confused as to the purpose and meaning, not just in terms of this narrative, but the purpose and meaning of this chapter in terms of all of Scripture. What is it doing here and why? Why do I need to know the 36th chapter of the book of Genesis? I'm sure that many of us would feel just as happy if the 36th chapter of the book of Genesis was not even there. We would say, great, we can move on to 37 and we can get into the story of Joseph, you know, the good stuff. How does this chapter further the redemptive purposes of God? And we might as well all just admit to the question that we all ask ourselves when we read the scriptures. And the question that we all ask ourselves when we are hearing a Lord's Day sermon, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, what does this have to do with me? Don't we all ask that? I think that if we are honest with ourselves, we all are asking the question at times when we're reading the scriptures, what does this have to do with me? When we come to passages like John 3.16, we know what that has to do with us. When we come to passages like Romans 3.23, we know how that relates to us. We see how that relates to us theologically and doxologically. But when we come to this 36th chapter, we may be altogether confused theologically and doxologically. What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with the story of redemption? How does this impact my life practically? Dear saints of God, I would like to encourage you and to remind you, as if you needed reminding, capital A-L-L, all scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is therefore profitable for the saints of God. All Scripture is profitable for our teaching, for our instruction, for our reproof, for our correction, for our being trained in righteousness, so that the man of God, that the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And that includes Genesis chapter 36. All scripture, not just the stories or verses that we particularly like or the stories or verses that we particularly understand. All scripture All scripture is profitable for the people of God. Dear ones, God does not inspire worthless, meaningless, unnecessary scriptures. If it's in the book, it's meaningful. If it's in the book, it's necessary. If it's in the book, it is 
helpful for our edification. It will help us to grow in some ways. As a matter of fact, what we have read today in the 36th chapter of the book of Genesis is so important that it's repeated again in 1 Chronicles chapter 1. So if you thought once you get past 36 that, good, at least I'll never have to read that again, hold on. You'll see it again in 1 Chronicles. It is so important. It's not here once, but twice. Therefore, it is our task to discover why the Lord has inspired his men to pin these names down for the centuries of the people of God to know and to take heed to. Therefore, this morning, with God's help, we shall see how this chapter is related to the covenant promises of God, and we will do so in three ways. Let us consider the first. Number one, covenant promises deserted. Number one, covenant promises deserted. This is Genesis chapter 36, verses 1 through 8. If we're looking for a way, a simple way, to make some sense of this chapter, one of the overarching truths that we cannot overlook is that the covenant promises of God are being advanced and fulfilled even in such a man as Esau. What does that mean? It means this, that the Lord God promised, promised by way of covenant to Abraham, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. As we progress through this 36th chapter, we see that God, that God has kept his promises. For the descendants of Esau, who are the descendants of Abraham, they are many, aren't they? We read through the names and we read through some of them twice and three times and even four times. But what we are seeing is this multiplication of descendants. This multiplication of descendants that, yes, they are coming from Esau, but they are also finding their root in Abraham. This cannot be ignored or nor overlooked. God is advancing his covenant promises to Abraham. Nations are being developed from Abraham's loins. And yet... While covenant promises are being fulfilled, advanced and fulfilled on the one hand, they are being deserted and abandoned on the other. In verse 6, we are told that Esau, Esau takes his wives, his daughters, and all that he has, and he leaves the promised land of Canaan. And at this point, we might be tempted to think that the narrator is not passing any kind of judgment on Esau, but simply just stating the facts. Esau left. However, we must not forget, nor ignore the fact that Moses, the writer of the book of Hebrew, of, G of Genesis, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he is telling the history of the people of God. And as he is telling the history of the people of God, he is at times um, calling back or referring back to stories that have been told in order to give us an understanding of the story that is being told so that we might understand how to interpret 
what is taking place. If that makes sense, uh, if that doesn't make sense, let me give you an example. Genesis chapter 3, you don't need to turn there, but we are told that the woman, that would be Eve, saw that the tree, that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that she was forbidden to eat from, saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise, and so she reached out her hand, and she took from its fruit, and she ate. Thus the fall of man. Then we come to the fifth chapter, and we see that the sons of God, that is the Sethites, those who have descended from the godly line, that they see the daughters of men, and they see that they are beautiful. And what do they do? In their seeing and in their desiring, they take for themselves, whomever they chose. Thus, the seed of the woman intermarries with the seed of the serpent. And we have this, this mingling of the, the godly line and the sinful line, which will ultimately lead to all of mankind walking and pursuing sin to the point of God, bringing all mankind down with the flood. But do you see there's this seeing, desiring that which is forbidden, taking it, and then God's judgment. That's a pattern that Moses is, is establishing in the book of Genesis. But it's not the only pattern. Here in the 36th chapter, we see something familiar again. We see two men, two men that God has greatly prospered, living in the same land. But because of their great prosperity, they cannot cohabitate in the land together. Therefore, they must separate in part ways. Where have we seen and heard this story before? We've seen and heard this story before in the story of Abraham and Lot. They both prospered. And yet when it came time, uh, and yet there came a time when their herdsmen began to quarrel with one another. And they decided that they could no longer live in the same land together. Abraham stayed in the land of promise while Lot turned his eyes eastward. Do you see what he's done? He's looking toward the east. He's desiring that eastward land. And he uh, takes a land or a piece of land for himself. It is the land near Sodom and Gomorrah. And we all know how that story ended. And yet here again, we have something familiar. We have two men that God has prospered in the land of promise. And in the end, one will stay and the other will go. What is taking place? The, the covenant promises are being abandoned. And, and, and what does the Bible say is the reason for their separation? Verse 7 says, the reason for their separation is this. The land could not sustain them both. Uh, their livestock were so vast and so great that the land could not sustain them and their livestock. Now, we might take this as a simple fact, but there's a comment at the very end of verse 8 that appears to be something more than just a simple fact. Look at verse 8. The Bible says, and Moses says, after all of his explanation of why Esau is leaving, he says, Esau is Edom. That's a very striking and important point. Esau is Edom. Now, Esau has acquired wives, children, property, livestock, and more in the land of Canaan. 
But he is not content to stay in the land of Canaan. Now think about this. Who, who is this man who we're talking about? It, it's fair to ask this. Was the land so small that, it could, that they could not live together? Think about it. Land. Think about Bakersfield. Not, not a very big place, right? But imagine uh, you've got one person who owns a large flock and another person who owns a large flock. Could they not together live in Bakersfield? I think they could. And now we're talking about Canaan. It is a land. Was that land so small that it could not sustain both Jacob and Esau without them, as they grazed, running into each other? Say, hey, move over. There's not enough land here. You know what? I'll just go. I think the answer to that is an obvious no. As a matter of fact, when Jacob comes to Shechem, what do the people say to Jacob upon his arrival? Jacob, the land is vast. Join us here. There's plenty of room for everyone. Uh, the Shechemites are essentially saying, there's no reason for any of us to quarrel with one another. There's plenty of land for all of us. Stay. Enjoy it. So then, what is really happening here? The underlining truth that is being communicated is that the land actually is large enough for both men, for both of their flocks. But the problem is that Esau is Edom. It's the land that was promised. It was the land of his father and grandfather. It was the land where God prospered him in so many ways. And yet, Esau turns his back on all of the covenant promises of God and in all of the ways that he's been blessed there. Why? Because he's Edom. What does Edom mean? Edom means red, which is the nickname that Esau developed after he sold his birthright for some red stew. He gained the nickname Edom. You are Edom from now on. Not only are you red in skin, red in hair, but you love red so much that you see red as more valuable than the covenant promises of God. Therefore, you will abandon God's promises. You, you, because you are Edom, you will abandon the covenant promises of God, all of the ways that God has blessed you here, and you will go somewhere else because you are not content with what God has given you. You sold your birthright for a bowl of red stew. It's meant to draw out who he is and what he does by nature. He's the man who up and left the, the land of promise. The same man who sold his birthright for stew, red stew. He is Edom. He's the man who forfeited his inheritance of the land for some red stuff. That, that's what he says when he comes to Jacob famished. He goes, give me some of that red stuff. He's the man who has turned his back on the promises of God. And even because of his actions... 
by way of his actions, he has shown not only has he turned his back, but he has reviled or been disgusted by the promises of God. He sees the red stew as more valuable than God's promises. He will go his own way. Why? Because he's Edom. That's what he does. That's who he is. Esau, Edom, seeks to make a name for himself. He deserts the pattern of conduct shown by his father and by his grandfather. He wants to make again a name for himself. He goes to a land that has no name. And because he lives by the sword, as his father said he would in Genesis chapter 27, verse 40, by the sword you shall live and your brother shall you serve, he goes to a land that has no name, conquers it by the sword, we most likely assume, and gives that country his nickname. This country is now Edom, and you all will be the Edomites. He goes to a new country and makes a name for himself. And I wonder if we might be all be asking ourselves at this point, couldn't that be a good thing? Make a name for yourself. Isn't that we, what, what, what we encourage our kids to do? And some of us encourage our kids to do it because we feel like we have some point in some ways failed to do it ourselves, right? Make a name for yourself. Uh, etch your name and print your name upon the annals of history. Let people remember your name and know your name. Wear your name on their back. Esau makes a name for himself by way of departing from the name that God offers and gives. Is it worth it? Make a name for yourself. But in doing so, you must abandon all of the covenant promises of God and blessings of God. Make yourself great. Get into the most prestigious schools. Get the best and most high-paying jobs. Let everybody know who you are. But at what cost? At what cost will we make a name for ourselves? At what point will we say... It's all been worth it. All of the forsaking and abandoning and even reviling who God is, what God has promised for my own glory, is it worth it? He wants nothing to do with the name that God gives. He wants his own name. Jacob was living that way too, wasn't he? For the longest time, Jacob was pursuing his own name, uh, trying to build up his own empire, until he came face to face one night with the Lord God of heaven and earth. And here's what God asked him, who are you? What is your name? And Jacob realized that all that he had done up until this point has amounted to nothing, that he still was that low, down, dirty, twisted man, Jacob. I'm Jacob, and I'm bringing myself to you, and I will not let you go unless you do something for me, unless you change me. Bless me, Lord. May I say to you this morning, that is the only way that your name can ever be great, is if your name is changed by God. Your name will only be great 
when you are found in Him, for He is the only one who was great. To be found in Him, to be His, as Pastor Isaiah was teaching last week, not to be seeing Jesus here and then you there. No, you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are no longer yourselves. You've been found in Him. You have died to the old men. You are now in Christ, and He has put His name on you. That's the only name that matters. Esau, though, will exalt his own name. Esau's life is really Babel or Babel all over again. He doesn't want God's name to be great. Because if God's name is going to be great, that means that His name is not. Some people would rather die than submit to God. You watch some of the street preachers sometimes and they're calling people to repent and you can see the anger in people's faces uh, as they're walking by and cursing them. What are they really saying? Down with God's name, up with my name. I heard a street preacher who was preaching on the street, streets of Toronto, and as he was preaching, a person passed by and says, how dare you? Jesus would never say these things. And he says, how dare I do what? How dare you tell us to change? The young man, thankfully, said to her, Jesus would not call people to change? She says, no. He would say, everybody, I love you all. What is he saying? You don't need to change. Be yourself. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. He's saying, do you know the first message that Jesus brought? It was repent. It was change. You are not okay. No, your name will not be exalted. There is only one name that is to be exalted. Repent for what? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you're not in the kingdom, you're outside of the kingdom. You're trying to establish your own. No, be a part of the kingdom. Let the name of God be exalted. That's always been man's struggle, hasn't it? Even as we sit here this morning, many of us are being confronted with our own selves and the own, our own ways of how we are trying to somehow gain some kind of notoriety for ourselves. The deception of the serpent was this. You could be God. You could be... You could not... You don't have to be under Him... You could be right alongside of Him. Imagine the possibilities if you were your own God. Exalt yourself. Make yourself great. No. And that is why Christ, the second Adam, is our wonderful example for what has He said? I have not come to exalt myself, but the One who sent me. He's done what Adam could not do. I have not come to be served, but to serve, to give my life. Christ knew that at the end of all this, the reward was that He would be glorified. But He is the only one who is worthy of being glorified. In order to rightly honor God, we must move out of the way. In order to rightly follow and honor God, we must go in the path that He has set before us, not our own. We, don't, we are not trailblazers. 
Isn't that what, what is the, that's the, the great American motto? We're trailblazers. We're ones who go where no man has ever gone before. And yet, we are still a country, and increasingly so, of those who are going where no man would ever want to go. That is straight to hell. The greatest way to honor God is not to have a great name, but to rejoice because your name is now changed and you are in him. Esau will now be ahead of a people. A people that we've never heard of up until this point. And from this point forward, they will be a people that will constantly oppose the people of God. Which leads to our second point, the covenant abandoned, covenant promises abandoned, covenant people opposed. Verses 9 through 31. I'm not going to read those verses again, but notice verse 31. We have this mention of the kings of Edom who reigned before any king. Listen to this. Ever reigned in Israel. That was at least striking for me when I first read it. There's a mention that these are the kings of Edom who reigned before any king ever reigned over Israel. Well, there would not be a king over Israel for Many, many centuries. So this is suggested or has caused some to suggest that this portion has been inserted by a later writer. Well, how would Moses know that there would be kings of Israel if there never was a king of Israel for at least up to that time and then wouldn't be for, for centuries later? This is not an insertion. This is a prophecy. Moses is prophesying, and he is looking forward to Israel's future. He is, in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, giving instructions on how the children of Israel should respect their future kings, which indicates that Moses, being led by the Holy Spirit, knows and can foresee that one day Israel will have rulers just like the other nations. The authors of the scriptures then they do not just deal with their own time and place, do they? They deal with past. They deal with present. And they deal with the future, even all the way up to you and I here today. Moses was writing to a people who were wandering. They were in the midst of their wilderness wandering. He was writing to a people who would come to Edom. Edom, again, is Esau and his descendants. The land of Esau would become Edom. And when the children of Israel fled from Egypt, they came to the very borders of Edom, hoping to pass through so that they, so that they could get to the promised land. And here was the response of the king of Edom when Israel was at their front door. If you try to come in, we will attack you. Don't you dare even think about it. At the very beginning of God's uh, people being exodused, if you will, out of Egypt, they are opposed by Edom. Later, when they must go through Edom, the back door, Edom's response is the same. When they were at the front door, if you try to come in through the back, we'll also kill you. After 
Israel finally comes into the promised land. One of the first nations that they are at war with is the Edomites. They are opposed coming in. They are opposed going out. They are opposed when they are settled in the land. The first king of Israel was Saul. We are told that Saul warred against the Edomites. Saul's successor was King David, the great King David, who finally conquered and conquested the Edomites. Israel ruled over Edom as God told uh, as God said that they would through Isaac. But Isaac said that this would happen until the yoke was broken over their necks. And this yoke of uh, at least conquer was broken when the Babylonians came and conquered Israel and took them into captivity. In Psalm 137, as Israel, if you can imagine, is being marched out of their homeland, if you can imagine them being hand-tied, being dragged out of their, uh, the promised land, he, Psalm 137 gives us the picture of Edom, if you can imagine, sitting on a fence, as it were, cheering on the Babylonians, saying to them this, Remember against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, and here's what they said, Raise it! Raise it to its very foundations! They are seeing Israel taken into captivity, and here's what they're saying, Tear them down! Tear them all the way down, Babylon. Do you know people who ever picked on you like that? Were you ever bullied that way? Beat him up. Kick him in the face. Pull his hair. Spit on him. Obadiah. That may be an obscure prophet for some of us. There's only one chapter in the, in the prophecy of Obadiah. Matter of fact, turn to Obadiah. This will be a good practice for you. Obadiah will later prophesy a warning to Edom for the way that they treated their brother Israel. And look at verse 8 through 14. Really, you should read the entire chapter when you get a chance. I will be long-suffering with you as you seek to find Obadiah. Obadiah chapter 1, for there is only one chapter, verse 8 through 14. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Timnan, so that every one may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, speaking about the captivity into Babylon, the foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem. You too were one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah. In the day of their destruction, yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you who gloat over their calamity, 
in the day of their disaster and do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. Do not imprison their survivors in the day of their dismay, of their distress. Obadiah is saying to them exactly what they have done. They were taking advantage of Israel when they were taken into captivity. They were gloating over them. They were looting the things that they had left behind. If you turn two pages over, three or four, the prophet Amos gives a judgment that was coming to Edom, saying, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions, uh, Amos chapter 1, verse 11, for three transgressions of Eden, Edom, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Because he pursued his brother with the sword while he stifled his compassion. His anger also tore continually and he maintained his fury forever. This is how Edom is described by God. They were a people who opposed the people of God. Who perpetually tore at their brother for nearly 1,000 years. They opposed the people of God coming in. They opposed the people of God going out. They were constantly at the heels of their brother Israel. And do you see who Moses is writing to? He is writing to the people of God in the book of Genesis. And he is saying, these people who will constantly be on your heels, this is who they are. This is where they come from. And this is why they are who they are. Because they are Edom. They are those who have forsaken the covenant promises of God. Do not be like them. They are always going to be tearing at them in anger. Edom represents all those who rebel against God and all those who oppose the people of God. Edom represents all those who say about God and His church, tear it down. All those who say about God and His church, we are out of date. All those who say about God and His church, your rules and your laws and your traditions, they don't belong here anymore. We are living in a day when we can have presidential candidates who can claim to be both Christian and at the same time living married homosexual lives. And the population as a whole accepting these false ideas of what a Christian is and for many of them being informed for the first time of what they might believe a Christian might be. What is that? It, it is a very slight turning up of the heat of persecution on you and I. This man is a Christian. That's true Christianity, to live that way. And we come with the book and say, No, my dear friend, that is a sin and an abomination against God. That is an old way of thinking. You need to change your way. No, it is what the Bible has said for 2,000 years, and it will be what the Bible says until Christ returns. You see, you and I are being persecuted now. We are not being persecuted in the way that our brothers and sisters in distant countries are being persecuted. We are not being persecuted by the sword. We are being persecuted by the law. Which will eventually one day lead to us being persecuted by the sword. For now, it's just a slow turning up of the heat for us to be persecuted first by legal actions. 
And if we refuse those legal actions, it will be soon enough, all of us may be having this kind of a service in jail. Tear it down, the world says. Tear her down. They are the seed of the serpent. They are that seed who will war against the seed of the woman that is the church. They are that constant enmity, that constant war that God spoke about that would exist between the two seeds in Genesis chapter 3. And dear brothers and sisters, we must accept that this battle continues and will rage on until Christ returns. The Apostle Paul gives Timothy and all believers this great encouragement. Here it is. All who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Isn't that encouraging? Aren't you glad you came this morning to hear that? The Lord Jesus gives us more encouragement. You'll be hated. All because of my name. Well, to God be the glory. And Christ gives us more encouragement. If the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. The war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It is a conflict that will continue and continue until Christ returns. But in the meantime, what must we do in our response? Go to Matthew chapter 5. Our brother uh, Deacon Ray read some of this earlier. Or it was at least uh, along the same vein. Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, blessed are those who are absolutely bankrupt, empty without God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And in the midst of your bankruptcy, in the midst of you saying, I need and can do nothing without God, the comfort will come. By God who brings to us the gospel. Blessed are the, the gentle, for they will inherit, shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall be, see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who came before you. Each of these is rooted in the absolute poverty that we have apart from God. We mourn, we shall be comforted. We are gentle and we are meek. We desire that which is right and true. We are merciful when we are opposed. We are not vengeful in our hearts. We are peacemakers through the offer of the gospel. And the Lord said that we must remember that when all of these things are taking place in way of persecution, we are blessed. So how do we respond? Remember, there is a blessing attached to your persecution. Uh, I said this many years ago, and I'm going to say it in the coarse way that I said it back then. You're not blessed because you're a jerk. When people don't like you, it's not because we must not confuse. They don't like me at my job. Was it because you are living righteously before them, or is it because you're a jerk? Because if you're just a jerk, there's no blessing attached to that. 
If you are just unloving and unkind, if you are just someone who sees yourself as better than, there's no blessing attached to that. They don't like me. It's because of Christ. No, maybe it's just because of you. But if you are living righteously before them, if they see that your righteous conduct, your righteous speech is something that glorifies and honors God and you are being opposed for that, there is a blessing attached to that. Hold on to that blessing in the midst of the opposition. How do I respond? I thank God that even in the midst of this, he will bless me. Praise God for that. The way that we can also show uh, what we do in the midst of opposition is we, we pray for them. We pray for those unbelievers on our job. We pray for our unbelieving bosses, for our unbelieving family and friends. And the greatest way that you can uh, pray for them or the greatest way that you can show love for them is by praying for them. You are blessed in the midst of opposition. You should pray for those who oppose you. And in the midst of them opposing you, love them. And what's the best way you can love them? By praying for them. What else can you do? Share the gospel with them. Forgive them. The great way that you can show your love for them is to bring to them the gospel. And say that this that I've found or that has found me can also be yours. If you repent of your sins and turn to Christ. Can I say to you, that's why you should know this chapter. That's how this chapter is related to all of the book, all of the Bible. We don't just take one chapter and say, I wish I could rip that out. It's connected to all the rest. If you rip it out, it's incomplete. So then we must ask this. What becomes of Edom? Are they just simply doomed? Or just like with Nazareth, is there anything good that can, 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 can come out of Edom? Third and finally, covenant promises fulfilled. Listen to this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Listen to it closely. Deuteronomy 23, 7. You shall not detest, this is from the law of God, you shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. Interesting, isn't that? It's one of the laws that God gives to the people of Israel. You shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not detest an Egyptian, because you are an alien in this land. And here's the third, this, or the second part, third part of it. The sons of the third generation who are born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord, saying this, if an Edomite wants to come and join for worship, welcome him in. Don't hate the person who is an Edomite. Don't hate the Egyptian. And if they want to come and worship with you, invite them in. It appears that there's some kind of hope for Edom. That there's some kind of light in the darkness. And then we hear something many, many generations later from the mouth of the prophet Amos. And Amos says something wonderful about Edom. Go to Amos. No, just listen. Here it is. Amos chapter 9, write it down. Amos 9, 11 and 12. And here's what Amos prophesies. In that day. Now we need to think about what day. There's a specific day. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth that is a tent of David. I will wall up its breaches. I will make it firm, make it strong. It won't be flimsy like a, like a tent anymore. 
I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as days of old. Then they, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. You hear that? There should be at least one phrase that sticks out in that passage that makes you say, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, wait a minute. Did he just say the remnant of Edom? What is a remnant? A remnant is a, is, is a small remaining quantity of something. It's a small remaining quantity of, of Edomites. And the Lord has declared that even among these people, the Edomites, who for all of these generations have been opposing the people of God, there remains a small portion that are his. Amos prophesies on that day, the Lord will make his appeal to the nations. And even some from that wicked nation of Edom, those who came from Esau, who despised the promises of God, even they will respond to the gospel and even they will be saved. Isn't that good gospel news? That even among those who have opposed God, God determined from the foundation of the world before that there will be some who come and believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That there will be a time when those who opposed Him will oppose Him no more. But they will join him. That's the power of the gospel. Now, we need to say, so then when does it happen? I'd like you to see this. Acts chapter 15. There's a famous council called the Council of Jerusalem. And it is surrounding the subject matter of circumcision. Can you be saved without being circumcised or not? Can you be saved without submitting to the Old Testament practices or not? Peter stands up and testifies that he's been sent to the Gentiles and says, God who knows their heart gave them his Holy Spirit. Peter says that the Holy Spirit is at work in them. The same Holy Spirit that is at work in us. The same Christ that we believe in is the same Christ that they believe in. Therefore, we cannot saddle upon them a yoke that we cannot bear. We cannot force them into something that we ourselves could not carry. Paul and Barnabas, they confirm this with signs and wonders. And, and James brings up the fact that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is something that was talked about, prophesied by Amos. Look at it, uh, uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 16. Listen to what he says. He says the prophets agree. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild their what? Their tabernacle of David, which was fallen. I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And listen to what he says. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. What does he do? James sees this prophecy of Amos. And he takes the word Edomites or Edom and he translates that to Gentiles. And what he's saying is this verse from Amos 
that God prophesied of nations, those who were rejecting God, those who were opposing God, even the Edomites, is now being fulfilled because those who were opposed to God are now coming to God. And that includes the Edomites. Can I say something to you real quick? And that includes you and me. Because James sees nations as all peoples, including the Edomites, including you and I. It is that picture that John sees in the book of Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, when a multitude of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue are gathered around the throne and they are worshiping God. People who are brought, who are far off, God is bringing them near. Just like the Edomites. And you can't get any more far off than the Edomites. That's a wonderful point in closing. None of us are too far off. None of us are too far gone. Those who say, I don't want it, I don't want to hear it, I don't want anything to do with it. And yet, and and may I say to you, that was all of us. Even this man who was raised in church. Oh, you can't believe the times when I said, I don't don't want to go to church, don't want to hear that pastor's voice today. Don't want to hear him yelling, don't want to hear him screaming. I was even a far up, especially me. But brothers and sisters, no one, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No sin is too great that God cannot forgive or cover it. There is no enemy of God that cannot be made a friend of God. We are often tempted to say, I'm too far away. Can I say to you, look to the Edomites and be encouraged that if God can save a people from them, then he can save you too. You can be brought near. Your heart can be humbled by his spirit. God is a loving and forgiving God. And can I say to you, and this is why you should read Genesis chapter 36. Because God keeps his promises. The promises he made to Abraham to make him a great nation and make nations of him, he kept it. Esau, though he was not the seed through whom the blessings would come, and even though he and his people would be a constant thorn in the side of God's people, God would preserve a people from him and would save them and bring them near. And that's all of us who have been brought near to Christ. We are those who opposed him and we are those who have been brought near. Not so that we can make our name great, but so that we can exalt his name and his name alone. I urge you this morning, read Genesis 36. Read all of the Bible. And praise God for his wondrous grace and that you are a part 
of that great plan of redemption. Let's pray.